Hello and welcome to another episode of Oconus, The Contractor's Life. I'm your host, Scott Dresser. My guest today is Bill Moses, a former member of the United States Marine Corps and the United States Army. Uh, Bill retired from the Army Reserves as a Lieutenant Colonel in 2002. Uh, former private security contractor residing in the state of Florida. Uh, Bill Moses, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure. <laughs> Likewise, it's a mutual pleasure for me. Uh, you and I spoke uh, briefly or at, at some length, actually, uh, the other day. Uh, I mean, a rather impressive resume, and, and we had a pleasant conversation. And, uh, you know, it's... Uh, You've got a lot. You've got a lot of experience <laughs> and some good credentials out there. Uh, so, Bill, for the folks that are listening, uh, can you provide them who you are, what you are, what you did uh, in your life uh, leading up to that moment, just before you decided you want to be a contractor? Okay, no problem. I uh, I completed uh, high school in New York City. I graduated at sixteen. And at 17, I got my parents' written permission to join the Marine Corps. They were went to Paris Island. That was February of 1965. I got sworn in previously December of 64. And I, uh, it was a turning point because I, I wanted to do it. I was pumped up. And all that organized harassment, it, it meant a lot to me. I was hooked. And at one point, I thought of just making it a career, but I also knew from the time I was extremely young that I would go into law enforcement. And without having college, I had to set aside the idea of being in the FBI and just say, okay, I'll be a New York City police officer. I did four years in the Marine Corps. Uh, couldn't go overseas because I was 17, so they sent me to New London Submarine Base, which is a guard detachment, honor guard. Uh, we did some funerals. Um, it's the place where they make all the submarines. I stayed there until October 66 and volunteered to go to Vietnam. I was upset. I had been an undergraduate in boot camp, and here it was 16, 17 months later. I was still a PFC, so I knew let me go to FMF, Fleet Marine Force, and use my MOS 0311. And the best place to go was to go to Vietnam. So I went by ship in a 30-day trip. Uh, unfortunately, two of the Navy guys washed over. There's something called general quarters. And general quarters means more than choppy seas. It means don't go topside. But I believe there were 700 sailors and 300 Marines, and when they did a head count later, two of the sailors, unfortunately, they couldn't account for them. They were missing. We assumed they washed in. But I, uh, we reached Okinawa, and it was my first time in a foreign country. Uh, besides being on a plane, going to Paris Island was the first time I ever been on a plane, but, you know, so many things that were first. But, uh, you know, I loved it. And getting to Vietnam was, was an eye opener because very shortly after getting there, I was involved in patrol activities. And unfortunately, uh, people alongside me were getting killed or seriously wounded and medevaced. 
And I, I stayed 13 months. I had an R&R around August of 67. We had a chance to go to Japan, but then I had to come back for what turned out to be four more months. I was told I would be home for Christmas because I had been there for Christmas, but I didn't get home till January 4th of 68. But that's okay. Getting home meant, thank God I made it. And other than jungle rot, a uh, couple of scratches, I didn't earn a Purple Heart, even though I, I got a lot of ribbons for extensive combat, especially the combat action ribbon. That's the most important one. And our unit, a lot of people never heard the expression reconstituted. That's when your unit becomes combat ineffective casualties. So if your unit should have 100, you're down to 40 people. They sent us back to Okinawa in April, and some brand-new Marines joined us. We were supposed to stay for three months of training. We stayed about 29 days, and then we had to go right back. And uh, I was assigned closer to North Vietnam, up in the DMZ, Northern Army Corps. And as uh, soon as we got back, we had incoming 152-millimeter rockets, and some of the guys who had never seen in combat, there were no, there was no place to dig in. You had to run, uh, look for some type of shelter. They bombed us. They bombed the airfield. And the next day, Hanoi Hannah, she came over the uh, radio with, how did you like your welcome? Third battalion, fourth Marines. Huh. And it was, yeah, it was, it was horrific primarily because you weren't prepared and there's nothing you can do for indirect fire. Right. Nothing you can, you can dig a hole, get into your bunker. Uh, I received 300 rounds of artillery up at Contien, which is a Northern I Corps. And that was for my 20th birthday. Just constant bombardment. But, you know, some of my friends whose names I recall, they were killed. But fortunately, all the rockets and mortars never hit my position. We were just waiting for the inevitable, which would be you know, them showing their faces, and then we would really get involved in it. Uh, most people don't realize firefights in particular, they don't last that long, because when you return fire, what well, we say, they, they did him out, and they moved. But when you get into a situation where you're surrounded, and you're a battalion surrounded by a regiment, unfortunately, we were out one time, and there were four tanks, when we left, there were two tanks. Um, everyone who was around the tank was killed or seriously injured. Mm. Myself, the lieutenant, the radio man, and the corpsman, we were part of the command group because I was the first squad leader. And uh, we made it out of there. But so many, I mean, it's like having a reinforced squad of 19, uh, five of us walked out of there. So it was just one of those times I thank God for blessings. It's not about training. It's not about luck. I think it's more about blessings. It was my turn. And then I saw something uh, recently where a friend of mine went to boot camp with me, also went to New London with me. There was a picture of Robert Muller, and Robert Muller was a, a lieutenant who happened to go to the same unit, 3rd Battalion, 4th Marines, Lima Company. I had already left. My buddy, he got sent to Vietnam when I volunteered. 
He was killed December 13th. I got out the Marine Corps December 27th. So basically, his four-year term would have been over in two weeks, but he, he was killed. So I keep that picture close to me. And I remember when it happened, his wife called me and she passed out. She was just you know, incredible. She was just looking, waiting for him to come home so they could start a family. But that's how it is. After getting out of the Marine Corps, I, I did immediately join the Metropolitan Police Department in Washington, D.C., and I was assigned to the vice squad undercover. They didn't give me a gunner badge. I had New York license plate on my Camaro, and you know, I kept my field jacket on. <laughs> but they asked me to buy drugs and alcohol after 10 o'clock at night. And a couple times I would be teamed up with somebody who could purchase the drugs because they knew the dealers. I just had to make mental notes, and we had to make multiple buys to have a prima facie case that he was, in fact, the drug dealer. And we would go into places that I would never go in on my own, but while purchasing alcohol one night, uh, somebody pulled a knife on me, and I didn't have a gun. I didn't have anything. The next day, I went and purchased a 38 Chief Special, and I still have it, but I wouldn't leave home without it. And I basically carried it, an ankle holster, for about 30 years every single day. Hmm. So I, I stayed in D.C., and in the interim, I had taken a test to be a New York City police officer. I also got engaged, and we got married in June. So my wife joined me in Washington, and then in October, October of 69, I was appointed to D.C., I mean, to, to New York City. And they, they made me the class leader, primarily because I was a Marine, but also because I had already graduated from the D.C. Academy, so I wasn't the average recruit. Mm. Uh, some of my classmates, of course, have passed away. And a few of them I'm still in touch with. You know, I'm so happy that you know, we bond as a young man, 21, 22. I was 22. I just made 22. But you bond with people, and you, you don't just walk away from a career. I uh, stayed a total of 24 years. I worked patrol, foot patrol. I volunteered for solo shotgun patrol. I... Uh, Worked cleaning 42nd Street during the time when all the movies were triple X rated and the prostitutes were out there. And if I worked at 12 to 8, I would see some of the ladies that I would see every day and just tell them, listen, 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning, I want you to meet me on 42nd Street, 8th Avenue on the north side, and I'm going to take you in. That way their pimp wouldn't beat them up because they made some money. But it's the winter time, and this gives them a chance to get off the street and also gets me overtime. Mm. Court starts at 8 o'clock, and the uh, process is slow. So normally you walk out about 1 or 2, so it's 6 hours, time and a half. You got 9 hours of pay, and the, the system at the time, it's a violation, loitering for the purpose of prostitution. So the ladies who were, had different names every time we arrested them. One day she was Sandy, next day she was Sherry, hmm. next day she was uh, 
Tani because they knew with, with a violation there would be no fingerprinting in that 90% of the time, I'm sorry, 100% of the time, the judge would dismiss the case. He would say that uh, just because she's out there, she's got very little clothes on, you can't know what she said to a person to identify her. And he didn't believe, most judges don't believe in loitering for the purpose of prostitution. So it was really a, a game between the prostitutes and the cop, the young cop like myself, I was 24 at the time, who would just kick off the street. It's too cold for you to be out here with your, your ass hanging out, you know, making money. And you know, a couple of girls I got, I got to not know, but they would um, just say, hey, Bill, how you doing? And I'd say, how are you doing? Are you okay? But there was a, a police officer who started an organization called Cops for Christ. He started something because he felt bad about these young girls. And he handed out cards. And I believe he had some positive return because every now and then I would talk to him and just say, Jerry, how you making out? He says, well, it's slow, but I'm making progress. That organization, and we're talking about since, say, 1970, that organization still exists in New York, Cops for Christ. And they just try to turn lives around, but prostitution isn't anywhere like it was in the 70s and 80s. You can't you can't walk around and say, wow, look at those 10 girls on the corner. Hmm. Then I got selected for anti-crime, and I was in the same area of Times Square trying to catch people either hijacking trucks, dealing garments off of trucks, uh, you know, a couple of People committed robberies, but basically anti-crime mean street clothes, undercover. And the bad part is you catch somebody after they committed their crime. Unless they're a pickpocket, people can't get hurt. So it's uh, it's not proactive policing. It's not preventing crime. It's just catching the perpetrator. That's what that uh, anti-crime is. Hmm. Now, isn't uh, that... Uh, it's interesting you bring that up because, uh, you know, those terms, uh, some of the others that you didn't mention, but the terms you use like crime prevention and other stuff, I mean, that, those are, those are tossed about a lot these days. Uh, in your experience, uh, I mean, is law enforcement really a crime prevention thing or is it really an after the fact thing? Well, no, it, it's, it's supposed to be a concept which includes prevention of crime. Uh, what is that? I used to know. I used to, I, one of my many jobs was law in the police academy. I had everything written down. I had everything memorized. But protection of life and property is the most important thing. The, the second thing was uh, preserving the peace, enforcing the laws, um, issuing summonses, violations, and making arrests. And the last thing was preventing crime. That, as I used to tell all of my students, that's impossible to prevent all crime. You know, crime crime will exist. The idea is through omnipresence, through wearing uniform. When we were on 42nd Street, there might have been 20, 20 police officers in uniform assigned to one block. 7th to 8th Avenue, 
all on 42nd Street. We were tripping over each other. Hmm. But we, we had to clean it up before Disney got there. And, you know, Disney started cleaning up Times Square professionally because they, they have, they've been running the Lion King for a thousand years and other, other wonderful family oriented uh, musicals and plays. But there is a, the, the overall policing concept and, and you'll hear a lot about community policing. That started some time ago, and that meant the officer would get out of his vehicle, get to know people. And back in 1972, they introduced name tags. Hmm. And there was some resentment. You know, some cops would say, I'm, I'm not wearing name tag. And yet the supervisor, during the inspection, he would check your holster, your shoes, your your appearance, but also did you have your mandatory issued equipment? And my name shields said uh, W. Moses, and yet everybody I met didn't say, hey, you call me Bill, you know, I have no problem with that. That's community policing. And a lot of what they call good police work is because of the relationship that people have with cops. They'll say, listen, I need to talk to you. You know, this guy is got a gun or this guy is, is selling dope. They let you know what's going on if you promise to remain to let them remain anonymous. So when you, you see a lot of cases on TV and says, well that was excellent police work, it probably had a foundation of somebody uh, saying uh, this is what happened. And all you have to do is follow it up. Huh. You know, I but you, you know, you answered a great question. I, uh, I ended up going to school. Uh, I decided I needed to get a college education and that it would help me. And I, I ended up getting an associate, bachelor's, and, and a master's degree. And then I was studying for my second master's when I got a brainwave to go back into the military. I was 29 years old and I, I wanted to go back in the Marine Corps as an officer. And the only units in New York, they, they had full billets. So I ended up joining the National Guard with the OCS for two years, got commissioned, and I stayed for 19 years. And then I went into the Army Reserve, which I, my friends had always told me, you need to come to the Army. It's, you'll become a battalion commander. You know, you know, it's something like your progression will be faster and greater. Uh, when I got into the Army, they had a program called Individual Mobilization Augmentee. That meant they look at the global map and decide where can we use a transportation officer. And I, I'd go to all the schools. I would take correspondence. So I would go to school for 107 days as a basic course. I'd go for 257 days advance. I'd go to senior officer logistic management course. I went to Command and General Staff College. I wanted to train with the Army as opposed to read a correspondence course and say, okay, I think I know what I'm doing. But the uh, Army Reserve, they sent me to South Korea. They sent me to Germany twice. Uh, I had a tour up in West Point. And I had my last tour in Fort Belvoir, uh, which is um, Maryland. Hmm. So okay, I really kick myself, not that I never became a, a battalion commander, because I was an H2, S3, 
I was a supplier, I was a maintenance motor officer. But when you're in the National Guard, you have a limited number of armories. You learn that you salute indoors, keep your cover on, except you don't salute on stairwells. And you know, when you when you've been trained as a Marine in the regular military, you see that the National Guard, the reserves is a different animal. You you actually do all your marching not on a parade field, but inside the armory. Your passing review, but uh, it was something I wanted to do, and it being second lieutenant Moses and and going all the way really meant that I I had eleven ranks in total, so I you know I was E six and I was OCS and then I was O five. Wow. Huh. So uh, <laughs> man, that is that is that is a uh, quite a span of uh, experience. Uh, and that was all on the civilian side before you became a contractor. Uh, and we could spend hours talking about all that stuff, and uh, we will at some point. Um, I don't know that we have enough time for all that today. Um, so now, when did so? At what point, uh, going through all this stuff, uh, what year was it when uh, all this, uh, for lack of a better term, when it all ended, and you made the choice to become a contractor? Uh, when, when did that occur, and what was the reason or rationale or decision process behind that, or what happened? I was at home. I had a wife and two daughters, and I, I watched 60 Minutes, and they had a segment, and it was about the U.N. International Police Task Force officers who had actually been NYPD officers, but they're working for the United Nations, dark blue uniform, powder blue beret, and they were working for the Haitian Relief. And I knew Ray Kelly. Ray Kelly, Ray Kelly was a commissioner, but he was he also retired as a Marine colonel. And I, I called him, and, you know, I call him commissioner, of course, I respect that more than his military rank. And I said, I'm, I'm interested in doing that. And the Haitian Relief Mission ended, but he said, well, if you're interested you get in contact with this company and the, the, the caveat was they wouldn't take you on a police mission if you had retired five years or more. Hmm. I just made it. I've been very, very lucky. <laughs> because I retired in 93. And it was 97 when I got in touch with Dine Corps. They sent, uh, sent me to Dallas, Texas, Answered 300 psychological questions. Uh, basically, how do you get along with people who may be slower from different countries? And, you know, I, I know you respect everyone. And you had to drive a standard shift, you in vehicle. But I was, I was hired. I was hired to go to Croatia. And I, I wore that blue uniform with a powder blue beret or powder blue baseball cap. And I had language assistants, interpreters, and they were so uh, instrumental because we were there to monitor the police. The police, of course, didn't like that. And hmm. people were returning after the war. Wow. <laughs> so now INL, that's been around for a while. And I think the first time I heard that was when I was doing contracting. Um, and as I recall, it's still a thing. 
But for the people that are listening that don't know what INL is or what it does, can can you shed a little light on that? Well, well INL, International Narcotics Law Enforcement, is a is a division working for the Department of State. You have IPTAP, which is the Department of, I think, Department of Justice Program, and then INL, which is DOS, Department of State. And what, what they do is they, they hire people. I was hired as a senior police advisor. And they, they actually sent me to Nairobi, Kenya. And in, in Kenya, as in a lot of countries, there's a lot of corruption within law enforcement. And I interviewed high-ranking officers and uh, a couple of them I'm still in touch with. This was uh, some time ago, 2010. But the uh, point is, they recognize that the, the country itself, if, if you stop somebody, so let's say a, a vehicle that has emissions problem, putting up a lot of smoke, and, you, and a police officer says, you know, I give you a ticket, it's $50. That's, I'll write with my right hand, but I can also take with my left hand. And you find out that's the culture. They don't see anything wrong because they're charging a civilian $20, not writing a ticket. If he goes to court, it's $50. And I think the average person, not that they, you, you don't condone corruption, but you understand in a poor country, it's a lot easier to come up with $15 than $50 in court. And what, what I did was I, I wrote a comprehensive report, 44 pages, that I submitted to one of the uh, deputy principal uh, uh, secretary of states. They call him P Dash, and he uh, he enjoyed what I gave him, and I was able to attend the Marine Corps ball, which was great, and then uh, go back after the holidays and com- complete what I was sent over there to do. Hmm. Re- Revise their training. They, they actually had an academy where they spent two hours talking about corruption, so there wasn't a lot of emphasis on if it's not your paycheck, don't take it. <laughs> now, um, so the INL mission that you were involved in when you first started, uh, you mentioned uh, uh, you mentioned uh, Kenya and one place before that. But that, that was also, uh, I mean, that's pretty much a, a mission in many countries around the world, including the Middle East, um, correct? Yes, but see, I don't want to get anyone confused. INL is, is an employee of the Department of State. When I worked for the UN, I was a contractor employed by DynCor, and I actually, that was a six-month contract. I stayed 27 months. I came home because at the time I was single, you know, my girlfriend and I, we would meet in Paris or whatever, but it was time to go home. But being part of the International Police Task Force, IPTF, that was called a peacekeeping mission. That you, you had the power to write reports, that's all. You didn't carry a weapon, but you had the power to write reports. My next assignment with, with DynCorp was as a security manager and the first offer was in this was in Afghanistan. The first offer was to be uh the ambassador's protection deep detail, APD, 
And I would have guys who you probably familiar with, guys who run with the ambassador throughout Afghanistan, you know, special forces, Marines, M1s, um, you know, armed for the mission. And before I could get on the plane, the, the people who hired me said, well, Bill, we'd, we think we'd probably be better fit with the Karzai protection detail, KPD, hmm. because I, I, had, I had been a, a dignitary protection with New York City Police Department. My last nine years, I was in the intelligence division, and I provided security for Mandela, uh, former President Reagan, um, so many world leaders that I would be assigned to. And I, yeah, I, I respectfully always took the assignment, never asked for an autograph, just did my job. So when I, when I got a chance to, to work in different capacities, I've always accepted. So before I could get to Afghanistan, it, once again, the phone rang, Bill, we think you can handle the, the CSD, construction security detail. You're going to have 22 Gurkhas. You're going to have to train them, even though they served in the British Army. And we trained with shotguns and nine millimeters. We carry those every day. Mm. You know, my contract was for six months, and I, I, I would have stayed longer. But before I, I left, I was offered a job, a USA job, which had greater compensation, uh, a greater title. I was a security coordinator on a USA project and uh it's actually the, the most money I had ever made, so it wasn't a hard decision to make. You know, I turned the range over to a friend of mine and I said he can he can do this job. He had been in the military, he was in the Navy and uh yeah I said I think he can do this. Even though the prerequisite was a bachelor's degree, he didn't have it but they needed somebody to replace me. Hmm. But that's the, that's the, the first time that was 1998 when I was actually carrying. I'm sorry, that was 2002, 2003, when I had to, you know, go to work with the uh, shotgun and nine millimeter on my side every day. Okay, uh, and that was when with U.S. Aid or when you were IPTF? No, no, IPTF was an unarmed mission. Okay, that was. Peacekeepers, you just That's right. you write you write your observations. Once I, I I left there and came back to the United States, I had a couple of corporate jobs in the security. I felt I needed to go back out, and fortunately, that's when I got picked up. And uh, my first mission where I was armed was actually with DynCorp in Kabul, Afghanistan. Okay. <clears throat> the the USA job asked me not to have a weapon, but everywhere I went, I had someone armed with the AK-47. I had a 11, I had 12, 12 local police officers, Afghani National Police, worked for me, and I had 150 locals working with me, because I had a, eight houses and a lot of consultants for the economic recovery of Afghanistan. Now, did you ever feel um, at risk or in danger or jeopardy when, when you were told you can do this job over here in this um, high-risk area, but you can't be armed? Uh, I, I had more concerns when I had to go outside of the bull. 
a couple of times I had to actually go outside of Kabul. And you have the, uh, the, the Lords, um, who have certain areas and they're, uh, you know, the tribal Lords, the tribal Lords. They have tanks, they have their own armies and they don't necessarily respect. Matter of fact, as an antidote, I, I took some of the locals on my one day off per week. I told them, let's jump in my Pajayo and I grabbed the basketball, even though you know, I didn't have sneakers on, but I, I played a lot of basketball. I even, I even played a game for the police department at Madison Square Garden. So, I, you know, I got a lot of experience. But when we got to the basketball court, before we could go in, there was someone sitting there with a sidearm. He actually had a shoulder holster. And he had the, the hat that they wear. And I asked my driver, who is that? He said, he's, he's security, but he's Taliban. Hmm. And, and the guy wouldn't smile. He wasn't friendly. He basically said, get the hell out of here. <laughs> and because I know they're not going to play a real basketball game, these four people I have with me, they might kick the ball more than dribble it. <laughs> I'm not going to get chesty with a guy who's got a nine and I got nothing. <laughs> Come on, fellow, let's, let's go. And even taking him to one of the few restaurants, I remember being with my driver, and he would look up bashfully and say, those, that, those three people over there, they're Taliban. They would kill him because he works for the Americans. Mm, right. So, yeah, things are pretty scary for them more than for us. Okay, okay. So, so you didn't feel particularly vulnerable without your weapon out there? Uh, that's a, that's a, that's a yes and a no. I, I just figured, you know, I'll, I'll play this close to the, uh, I won't be out at night because at night there is no light. You can't see anything. And I went through two drivers in one day because they were driving too fast for the road condition. But the person who became my driver, he actually sent me pictures today. When I, when he was my driver, he had a newborn baby. That was, Quite some time ago, 2003, he, he now has four kids, and of course his son is like 16 or 17. But we, we stay in touch. I remember leaving uh, uh, leaving him, but I had the pleasure of meeting his family and his father and his brother and his wife because he took that one day I had off to take me to his house. And he said, "You know, come, I want to take you to meet my family." And I said, "Sure, right that. And he was kind enough to give me a, a college shirt. I used to wear t-shirts every day. And he, he knew that the secretary of the treasury was coming. So I had a bomb sweep in at the central bank. I was prepared. You know, I had the, the dogs out there and everybody else who could support me. But he said, you gotta, you gotta look a little better than you look. And I appreciated it. Hmm. Wow. You know, uh, some of us talked about, about that, about, uh, uh, well, the phrase I used to use is making friends with the uh, locals. And uh, some of those relationships uh, you maintain, retain um, over the years, as what you just uh, mentioned. Uh, and, and that's a different special kind of feeling, is it not? Well, because I spent so much time in different Arab countries, uh, Bahrain, Dubai, Abu Dhabi, um 
the, the big point is that I went to Jordan in 2005, and I went to train Iraqis to become police officers. It was a big mission. The United States was, was paying $1 million a day. A lot of money. And they hired instructors from 17 countries. And, you know, my background, teaching law in the police academy and also being a, a contract lecturer at John Jay College of Criminal Justice, I was very comfortable in front of the classroom with an interpreter speaking one sentence at a time, knowing that they can't understand my English any more than I can understand the Arabic. You, you learn to say good morning, good afternoon, uh, be careful. But uh, it was it was interesting because 10 months after I got there, I got an opportunity to interview for a job as the head of general policing. There's only two divisions, operational policing and general policing. General policing is classrooms, 32 classrooms of four different buildings. And you have, you have a staff of instructors, interpreters, but it's, it's a, a job I didn't come here to get. But I interviewed among six others and I was selected. And, you know, I didn't take the job because of a pay raise. I took it because I, I thought I could uh, improve the training. Some of the instructors from different countries really weren't doing a good job because by 8 o'clock we're in the classroom, but by 8.05 some of the students had their head on the desk sleeping. Hmm. So I had to change the rules. No video over the lights out. No heads on the desk. Take your coat off. March in with your hats off and coats in your hand during the winter. And in the summertime, just, you know, at a fast pace, march in and everybody, like the Marine Corps, when the instructor gets to the head of the classroom, he says, seats, and everybody sits down together. But the coats in the winter had to be behind the chair and no sleeping in the classroom. That was the duty. And I, I rearranged the classroom to make it more like a horseshoe as opposed to a series of desks five rows deep. Huh. Now, that was in uh, Jordan. That was in Amman, Jordan, at the place called uh, Jordan International Police Training Center. They actually made a video that went on the History Channel, and I wasn't featured, but I did have a speaking role. And uh, you had different groups from the United States, congressmen and senators, and in 2005, I met a, a senator from Illinois, happened to be Barack Obama. Hmm. And uh, he said, why don't you wait for Hillary if you want to take a picture with me? We gave him a tour, showed him all the facilities and where the students slept, where they ate, uh, the basketball court, the fitness center. It was a huge facility. And uh, the joke was, he, he basically said, why don't you wait for Hillary and I asked him to take a picture, and we did. And I also introduced him to a Chicago police woman who was there working with me. So she was happy to meet her senator. Huh. But it was, it was it was 27 months, great experience. And then I came home, and I, I can't recall what I was doing, but I received an email about going back to Jordan to becoming a program manager. And I accepted the invitation from Alutech. That was the company that hired me. But what they, they did was they hired the former director when we were training Iraqis. 
they hired him as the program manager who would be at the embassy, I would be back at the same site when we trained at Rockies. So it was like going back home, and I stayed for 23 months. We had a lot of American teams come over to teach SWAT training, FBI agents teaching crime scene management, post-blast investigation. It was just uh, 16 courses, and at one time I put my name on the list later to I'm qualified to teach six of the courses. I, I can't teach uh, post-blast investigation, but I can teach crime scene management, and, you know, VIP protection, stuff like that. Okay. And that was your second time back? Is that is that right? Yeah, second time okay. is when I – it was a uh, – it was what they call an anti-terrorism assistance program, okay. ATAT program, ATA program. And it was where different teams of trainers with their expertise, like convoy operations or the FBI agents, cybersecurity, different teams would come and we would accommodate them. I'd pick them up at the airport, make sure their housing, their hotel, whatever, and they would get fed. And the cybersecurity courses were usually done at the, at the Jordanian schools, but we would be there to monitor and arrange the transportation for our trainers and make sure they have the best language assistance interpreters. Hmm. Okay. Now, a lot of, tell me from your experience and those that are listening, uh, you know, a lot of folks have a lot of different things to say, and sometimes it's the same or similar, uh, good experiences, bad experiences, what have you. But your time overseas um, as a contractor, would you say, generally speaking, um, you had good experiences or bad experiences, or was just kind of like a mixed bag? Over, overall, I would say good experiences. You're always going to have some assignments, even you're in lockdown. I, I had mentioned to you last year I was in Beirut, Lebanon, and I had been to Lebanon in 2005. I took a little three-day R&R, but this time I was there for six months. And we were on lockdown. You're living in a container. Most of the guys are former MSG, I mean security guards. And I was on the site security coordinator, so everybody working for the one company who were exchanging badges or checking the site out, the construction site for the new embassy. It's a, it's a monster for young people more than someone else because you want to go out, you want to go dancing, you want to enjoy the environment. Uh, this was a six-month tour, and you could cook in the community kitchen, but in your small container, you had a microwave, a twin bed, and a TV. I had two TVs and a queen-size bed, but I still know what, you know, this is not contractor work. Contractor work, I've had some, uh, I stayed in Lithuania, as a contractor, as a team leader, and I was there for a, a year, and I enjoyed it. I only came home because it was time to get married. I was in London. I was in Guyana. And usually you, you get a nice apartment, and you learn the culture, very important, because in Jordan, it's a 92% Muslim country. So if you had a girlfriend or your wife come with you or come over, 
You have to respect the culture. Wear a long skirt, a long dress, cover her legs. Uh, she doesn't have to wear something over her head. But it's always important. And, and when I work with the Department of State, these pre-deployment uh, lectures that I would uh, be tasked, I would always tell the people going over for the first time, you're, you're representing the United States, but you must remember to respect that culture. Whatever it is, right, <laughs> right. That's huge, um, and, and uh, you can really, truly only appreciate it when you've been there and had to experience it and, and, and come to terms with it. Um, so now you worked for more than just on the private side of your work. You did you worked for more than just dying corps. Is that correct? Oh yeah, yeah. I've, I've worked for maybe fifteen companies. I've been to 10 embassies where I worked, and only, uh, I would say, Deco, when I went to East Timor, that's where it started in 2004. I took a team out there, and they provide construction security. And as I mentioned, a lot of people, you don't have to really have a construction background, but depending on your task, a lot of the MSG, they segue into that line of work because it pays a lot. And it's it's basic, it's simple. Exchange badges, uh, go to check out the work site, make sure there's no compromises. So yeah, I've, I've been around uh, a number of sites. Believe me, some of them are better than others. Certainly, working <laughs> in London is good. My wife loved it. We go to see a, a play, a musical, go to movie. You know, have a good time. But some places, Niger, um, Niamey. Um, there's some countries where it's, it's just not a good time to be had. You're going to go in and do your job and, you know, go back to your room, so to speak. Right. <laughs> okay. So now your, your varied experiences, um, particularly outside the United States, uh, both on the private side and the public side, you know, the client, the, the agency, whoever, um, would, would you say, what would you say are the, are the major differences, whether it's operational or culturally, that that you noticed, and if, if you want to, um, which one did you prefer? Well, well I'm, I'm all about structure, so when I go into an organization, usually, especially working in the embassy, the first day or two, you spend reading operational orders. You, you, you have to know what you're doing and you have to put your signature or your initials that you have read all of your books about what's going on here, the proper way to do your job. And, you know, coming from the Marine Corps, the police department, I, I love structure because that way it's a clear line if you're doing it right or you're not doing it right. And as a, you know, first line supervisor or a manager, some things are correctable. There are other things that are fatal flaws. You know, if you're sleeping on assignment, something like that, or you're not doing your job, you, you don't really get a second chance. So I'm, I'm always about structure. Help someone learn the job. They get up to, to speed with the ones who have been there longer. And then you always look for someone who's a peer trainer. Because you could say, listen, private Joe Blow, I need you to train this other private. And then on some sites, 
you have women, females, and you have to have special consideration. Same job, same pay, same title, but you have to always be cognizant. You know, treat, treat women a little differently than you treat men. Right. <laughs> it's interesting you mention that because uh, uh, we often talk about uh, talk about those things, but um, it's different when you're actually there and you experience it. Uh, you know, because I, not all women, but certainly a lot of women want to be treated, quote unquote, the same. Well, and, and I think what they're really saying is they just want to be treated fairly. They just, you know, same opportunity, same everything. And if they can cut the mustard, great. If they can't, then they can't. Um, did you ever run into any issues with that? Kind of, sort of. I had a, a team leader, and he showed preferential treatment to a female. She was going to be an only female until the next one showed up. But he did things that were so out of character, and the only way I knew was because someone, part of the team, they had a problem with you know, him taking her shopping. That starts at, she got there at 12 o'clock. So he took her shopping maybe at 3 and then they, they came back at 11.30, 11.45 at night. Hmm. But she didn't come to work at 6.30 in the morning. So when I asked him, where is the new member, new team member? He said she, she had jet lag. And I told her, when you when you wake up, come on down to the embassy, to, the, uh, to, to where we work. And I said, that doesn't work. Because everybody here, including me, when we're working days, we get to work between 6.30 and 7 because the people who come to work come to work at 7. So if you're here issuing badges, taking badges, exchanging badges, he has to come in and read those those manuals. And then she has to, you know, learn how to do her job. You can't just cut it. It was maybe quarter to 10. And that really, uh, you know, I spoke to her and said, listen, it's not your fault. But I had to chastise him and say, you know, this is not professional. You can't show preferential treatment. She has the same housing separate from the men. She has the same assignment, same uniform, and she's doing the same job. But let's not, you know, keep her out, take her to dinner and come in 1130. And yet she doesn't come to work early in the morning. That that doesn't work. Right. Right. You know, and I don't know how many, I mean, I, I, I wouldn't say I hear it a lot, but it does come up. And I don't know how many guys have actually <clears throat> experienced that firsthand, particularly outside the U.S., um, probably more so in the U.S., but um, it is kind of disconcerting, troubling. Um, and, and I wouldn't say I saw a lot of it, uh, only a, maybe a handful of times. I think most women were cognizant of it and didn't want to get wrapped up in that. Um, but... Uh, that was just an interesting aside. I mean, it's it, but it, it it came up in conversation with with a uh, with somebody I was talking to uh, earlier today, um, a female contractor, and uh, so I was curious, you know, you know, what your experiences were with that. Um, was that was that a com- that was that a common thing, or was it just you know an isolated thing that happened just once in a great while? That was an isolated issue because. When I was in Jordan, and remember I spent almost four years in Jordan, 
it was always a pleasure working with whoever they were, whatever gender, men and women. Everybody came there as a professional. Uh, one of the ladies came back because she had her fondest moments in her life, according to her, being a trainer, training Iraqis, knowing that they're the target when they go back home, Iraqi police officers. Hmm. So she took her job as serious as anyone should. But she uh she extended her stuff. She got some calendars made up at her own expense and uh she got cups for people just to say, you know, thank you for the experience. And we we, we maintained that was two thousand and five. She's she's a retired lieutenant from Port Authority Police. And unfortunately, we have friends who got killed during nine eleven. You know, one of one of my uh Sergeant in the National Guard. I didn't know he was killed until I saw his picture in the news because I always called him Magneto. I call him Mac, Big Mac. But when I saw his full name in his picture, it, uh, you know, it upset me somewhat to know here's my, my good friend who would, you know, throw a salute if I'm going through the Holland Tunnel or something. But he, he must have run into the Twin Towers because I don't think he was assigned there. He must have been running towards to help out. Now, since you brought it up, um, did that incident, that episode, uh, in that time frame, did, did that change your perspective or change your desires or make you want to do anything any more than you, than you did or were? You won't, you won't believe this, but it's another huge bullet. I, I came home during the Tet Offensive. The Tet Offensive is when we started losing the war in Vietnam. I, I left January 4th. The Tet Offensive started January 4th. So just dodging a bullet. I also, there was a company called Stomach Security Services in New York that had hired me as a client services manager at One World Trade Center. I got my fingerprint recognition. I was going back for some type of anti-terrorism training. And when I asked someone the salary, I decided I wouldn't take that job. The people I had met who were former FBI or State Department employees you know, at that level, and the, the I think it was 60 officers would be working security there, the ones who were on duty all got killed. I kept my ID as a reminder the grace of God, I didn't accept the job because I knew that the salary, uh, I felt that at that position it should have been a greater salary. And, and the guy said, Bill, I'll make it up to you. But I just said, no, no, no. I, uh, I didn't know. I didn't know audition. I didn't come for an interview hmm. for this position at that salary. So I've been uh, very fortunate. I always say blessed more lucky to dodge these big bullets so far. Wow, that's two very big ones, right? Man, that's yep. amazing. Uh, those are probably stories in themselves. <laughs> uh, I mean, you're already harking on that. That's amazing. Um, wow. So, uh, what? So now you've been home. You and I, when we talked earlier, you've been home for uh, relative, you know, comparatively speaking, a short time. Uh, so, when would now? Are you still? Uh, I think when you and I talked, you said you were you prefer something home, but you would entertain something back overseas. Are you at a point in your life now where you where you want to keep contracting overseas, or do you want to stay home? I mean, 
Where are you at now? What's what's going on and what's changed? Well, it's, let's say putting COVID aside, there were opportunities offered when I left um, Bahrain. I ended up going to Beirut. When I left Beirut, uh, there were other countries that were offered, but I decided let me go home for a while and spend time with my wife. We only got married. Uh, 2015, and she enjoys the travel. We've been to so many countries together, but I, I want something that's commensurate with my experience. There's a place in Florida, and it's uh, IMG or SMAs, Sarasota Military Academy, and IMG. I don't know what that stands for, but it's it's a, a residency school for young people, uh, like pre-college. And I, I saw a position there, and there was someone I knew who had the position, but he passed away. And I said, let me go over there and see if I can get the director of security position. And the young man who interviewed me, he just said I, and he had previously interviewed a former chief of police. And my question was, why didn't you hire him? If you were impressed with his former career, you know, I was a detective. I can't claim to be a chief of police. Now, I, I'm, I'm very good at military and VIP protection, but whatever a chief does, I don't have a parallel experience. So the point I'm, I'm really making is I'm not pushing hard, but I'm always looking. And if it's a great opportunity abroad, overseas, I'm, I'm going to run. If it's something less, I'm going to say, okay, I'm, I'm okay. I'll, I'll be all right. Okay. So I, I got to ask because this thought occurred to me when you mentioned it here in this just this very last segment. Uh, are you glad you came home and things are the way they are now, or looking back, do you say, you know what, dang it, maybe I should have just stayed there? No, no, because I talked to my friends who still work here, permanent employees, because they're Department of State employees, and uh, they were SS security managers. I was one level below them, site security coordinator. And they, they, they said it, of course, due to COVID, everything got worse. We were on lockdown anyway, but it got worse. And, and I don't know if you recall, there was a, uh, an explosion in Beirut. Yes. And, okay. Now, initially they thought it was terrorism. I don't know in the final analysis what that is, but it, it's a hardship. And knowing that this world is a big place, you know, you've got some assignment that uh, when I was in Bahrain in particular, as a country manager, I have a nice apartment, I have an SUV, uh, I have a, a wonderful staff of 33 people working with me. You know there are assignments that are nicer, better, and it's not always based on compensation. It's something that you can say, oh, yeah, I want, I want to do this, I can do this, and the clock is ticking. So I'm not trying to, like a young person would say, well, I want to try this. Or I want to build a career. You've seen my resume. I've been there and done that. So for me, it's like, is this a good fit? If it's a good fit, then I'm going to do it. Right. Right. Uh, so a final question here. Uh, are you com- So you sound like, I guess I'm looking for confirmation or denial. Uh, are you comfortable where you're at now in your life and your career? 
Well, I know I want to I want to get back to work. This is the first year in my entire life. I've been working since I was about fourteen. This is the first entire year, and part of it is COVID. Uh, the other part is you know opportunities weren't there that I wanted. Um, you know, going to Mexico City and somewhere else I didn't want to go, but I'm not ready to retire. That's the point. I can retire. I, I'm I'm comfortable, but I want to get back in the mix. And I, I believe I'm always a mentor because every assignment I've had recently, I've been able to pick somebody out and say, listen, you can do this because you're a fast learner. You, you know, you did your four years in the Corps. And one guy had actually done, I think, eight years in the Navy. And, uh, and I said, Joe, you know, this is your first time out, but you've got what it takes, man. You know, you apply for a team leader position. And you're going to get it because I'm going to recommend that you get it. You got the maturity. So I think I still have something to offer. It's certainly not money driven, but I I like to stay busy and doing things I'm proven capable of doing is what I'm talking about. I'm not trying to invent anything or be somebody I'm not. Right. Wow. Uh, So, uh, Bill, as as we wrap this up, uh, for the folks that are listening, do you have a takeaway or something, pearl of wisdom, something you'd like to leave people with, a final thought? I think treating people decently is a reflection on who you are. The people I have met overseas, in Jordan in particular, I can go to Armand Jordan, and one of my friends who worked in the gym, fitness center, he, he's, he's done pretty well for himself. He treats me like family. I attended five weddings, and yet his wedding, when I go to Jordan, he has an apartment building where his family stays. He gives me an SUV. I've taken my wife to Abu Dhabi for one of the interpreters who had come to New York, and I treated him and his wife to dinner. And when we we got to Dubai and Abu Dhabi, and said, we're going to go see Tamir, I think the, the greatest takeaway is treat people decently. Right. You know, my, my driver from uh, 2002, 2003, he sent me that Facebook message today with him and his four kids. When I met him, his, his only child was two months old. And I remember because he bought me the shirt, I gave him a $50 bill to say, this is an American custom. You must take this because you are now a father. You're doing the, the fatherhood of fathers. And he, he didn't want to take it. You know, I gave him a nice salary when I hired him, but he, I said, no, you, you bought me that shirt. You didn't have to do that. So you, you bond with people because they, they can see through you. You know, if you're decent, things happen. If you're not so decent, well, shame on you. <laughs> you know, man, that is so, so right on. Um, and, and for those of us that have, you know, walked that mile or two, uh, we, we know exactly what you're saying. Uh, for the rest, I guess just, you know, broaden your horizons, open the world, and get out there and, and join it because it's a it's a big, beautiful world. There's a lot of ugly, but there's a lot of beauty out there too, man. Um, so, so that's well said. Well, Bill, i got to say uh, it's been an absolute pleasure uh, talking with you uh, for this episode, uh, for this podcast. Um I would like to, uh, at some point, there's a lot of stuff that we could cover down on. Um, so hopefully, 
you'll be amenable to coming back and doing this again in the future. Okay, I'm fine, man. I really appreciate the opportunity, and hopefully anybody hearing this will recognize I'm saying be a decent person in, in all your endeavors, and it'll probably come back on a positive side. It usually does. It might take time, but it usually does. That's right. Um, so for all the people, so again, my, my, my sincere gratitude and thanks for Bill Moses being uh, a guest for this episode. Uh, to all the folks that are listening, uh, thank you very much for being the loyal listeners that you are to the show. Uh, I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Uh, remember to be careful what you wish for out there, folks. Stay frosty, and until next time, keep it real. 